Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax as we deliver a show that's out of this world. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature an update on Fukushima and the Victoria Bond planetoid. But first up, we should touch on what's considered by some to be the medical breakthrough of a generation, the stem cell organ transplant. So Ian, can you tell me a little bit about this wonderful occurrence? A patient who needed their trachea replaced, their windpipe, had their windpipe modeled, imaged, and then a polymer copy of it was made to form a scaffold for stem cells from the patient's body. And instead of the stem cells coming from their bone marrow and then taking months to grow in a bioreactor, the stem cells actually came from their fat tissue, the adipose. And that meant they could put it in a bioreactor with the trachea and it would all grow in two days. And then the finishing touch was to get cells from the lining of the patient's nose so that the lining of the windpipe would have respiratory cell lining. And they transplanted it and it all seems to go well. And I heard about something similar to this happening in 2008. What's different about this time? In 2008, they did something very similar, but they used a windpipe from a corpse. So it was a donated one. And, I mean, they stripped out the native cells, but there would still be some issues with rejection. In this one, with the polymer and the patient's own cells for everything, there's very little danger of rejection. So it's a fully unique artificial organ created from the patient's own cells. Yes. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space, which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific fact Next up, Martin Ficini, Ian Wolfe and I spoke to Matt Dawson an amateur astronomer who discovered asteroid 255073 of 255074 discovered so far and named it Victoria Bond. Hello, my name is Matt Dawson. I'm an amateur astronomer who lives in Luxembourg and I work at an amateur observatory 
um, in France, uh, at a place called Metz, which is not far from here. And by profession, I'm actually a rock musician, but as an amateur astronomer, I do get up to all kinds of things, almost always involving asteroids, which are also known as minor planets. And I've got to say, I'm really excited to be doing this interview because some of my favorite amateur astronomers are actually Australians. And uh, you probably have heard of Robert Evans, who's an Australian priest who has discovered the most supernovae of any amateur. I, um, I just love asteroids, and particularly near-Earth asteroids. And what we do, basically, is um, it's very, very expensive to run a professional telescope. And we amateurs, what we try and do is when the professional telescopes in America, the, the, the big surveys, the Catalina Sky Survey and Linear and all these big surveys, when they discover new asteroids that might be in some danger of hitting the Earth at some point in the future, they need amateurs, dedicated amateurs, who kind of know what they're doing, to follow up the positions of these asteroids so they can um, calculate the orbits in such a way that they can rule out possible future impacts. So we have a large telescope at our disposal. It's um, 83 centimetre, which if there's any amateur astronomers out there, it's nearly a, a bit less than a one-metre telescope. And we can get really, really deep. Discovering new asteroids is kind of a fun byproduct because... When you're taking photographs of or CCD images of the sky, things turn up that you just check out what they are, and there's an awful lot of undiscovered asteroids out there. And the fun thing about discovering your own new asteroids is you get to name them. Well, not strictly true. You get to suggest a name for them, which the Minor Planet Center in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, can either accept or not accept. And that's that's how you came to our attention, actually. When I started listening to um, to your show some time ago, and I just love it because it, I learned so much about so many different things. And um, it's and I just listen to it in the car, go to the observatory, and I listen to it while I'm doing all nighters in sub-zero temperatures. And I, I just think it's a brilliant show because it just covers so many different things, and it's funny, and it's entertaining, and the science is always good. Uh, and I don't know, I just got hooked. But back to the near-Earth astronomy, so is, do you do it because you feel that you could be warning planet Earth? I mean, are you looking for that asteroid that's going to kill us all? No, actually not, because we very specifically follow instructions that are given to us by professional astronomers worldwide. The Minor Planet Center run a website where near-Earth asteroids in need of observation uh, they say this thing was discovered last night. At the moment, there is a one in 200 chance that it might hit the Earth in 2009. We need more observations. So I'm very much aware that we are part of a worldwide team, if you like, that is doing, is protecting the Earth. But we, we follow a very strict procedure, and we have very, very strict guidelines as to the accuracy that our measurements have to be. I mean, that's something that, that people aren't probably aware of, but the, the Minor Planet Center will only accept observations that are done, measurement, positional measurements of asteroids, you know, where they are at a particular time, that are within two arc seconds, uh, um, which, that's a credit card on edge from one kilometer. I mean, you have to be pretty damn accurate. But 
It's not so much, I mean, I don't think we see ourselves as Bruce Willis or somebody saving the world. It's more a question that this is a job that is very, very important because there is a danger from asteroids and there's a, a hideously small amount of money committed by worldwide governments. Australia is actually one of the best, I believe. But um, it's pathetic the amount of money given to protecting us because there's a very real possibility that, I mean, things do hit. I mean, Tunguska in 1910 and, you know, a school of thought believes the dinosaurs were wiped out by uh, an asteroid and there's hundreds of thousands of them. I mean, your asteroid is 255019 and that's, so that's the 255,019th asteroid given a name, uh, sorry, given a number within the asteroid belt and there's hundreds of millions of them and one that could hit the Earth could just arrive out of nowhere at a second's notice. This new asteroid, uh, Victoria Bond, is it one of those near-Earth objects that you study on a regular no, basis? Um, the ones that near-Earth objects tend to be discovered by the big surveys. But in the course of our work, we do discover normal main belt ones, which means they're not dangerous, but they're the regular ones that orbit between uh, Jupiter and Mars. And, and where exactly is Victoria Bond? Um, I think she's sitting in the studio with you. Well, how about Victoria Bond 20119? Where is Victoria Bond at this precise moment? She's well into the northern hemisphere, plus 23. That's quite far above our horizon. She is elongation 11.3, so she's almost behind the sun, so not much chance of spotting her at the moment. But she reaches opposition next year in October, so... She'll be very well placed for observation next October. Can you assure us that she poses no risk to humanity? The one in the sky doesn't. I don't, I don't actually, I've never met the one in, in your studio, so maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. She's a very, very faint asteroid, though. When I discovered her, she was magnitude 19, which is pretty much like if you held a candle up in Spain and photographed it from Luxembourg, that's kind of how bright she was. So she's small. Not very bright. <laughs> Please don't take this as an insult. Rocky, um, pretty much round. It'll never be, it'll never get anywhere near the Earth. Fantastic. Uh, for me, every asteroid is a separate little world, and that's why I like discovering them. That was Matt Dawson, Diffusion Science Radio's biggest fan. You can check out his music at www.thelunarbeats.com. In olden times, people imagined bears and lions, gods and people in the sky. They thought they saw winged horses and wriggling snakes, sailboats, and beautiful maidens. They invented interesting stories to explain how those constellations got there. That's how the constellations got their names. Today, astronomers use them to locate the stars. Wouldn't it be heavenly to know the constellations? Scan the skies and recognize their names and their locations. Though they're only figments of our own imaginations, wouldn't it be heavenly to know the constellations? Hercules, Delphinus, and Andromeda, and Lyra, Pegasus, and Sagitta, Dorado, and Lacerta, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, Cetus and Orion I could name a dozen more if I were really trying 
In the zodiac you'll find a dozen constellations. You can trace them in the sky with just a little patience. Leo, Virgo, Scorpius, and Gemini, and Taurus. These are five, now who can aim the other seven for us? Aquarius, Sagittarius, Aries, Libra, Capricorn, Cancer, Pisces. What determines what we see among the constellations? Atmosphere, the time of year, as well as their locations. Latitude and time of night are prime considerations. Each of them are factors when we see the constellations. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2SCR.com. Diffusion is recorded in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Martin Ficini is back in the studio to give us an update on Fukushima. On March 11th of this year, Japan was hit by a magnitude 9.0 earthquake. Approximately 45 minutes later, a 15-meter wave struck the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The subsequent loss of all power and cooling systems would lead to three reactors melting down, multiple hydrogen gas explosions, damage to the structures containing the fuel, and widespread international fear about the uncontrolled release of massive amounts of radiation. The Fukushima power plant contains six nuclear reactors. On the day of the earthquake, reactors 1, 2, and 3 were operational, while reactor 4 had been defueled and reactors 5 and 6 were shut down. Even though the fuel had been removed from the core of reactor 4, it was simply moved to a nearby storage pool. Each of the six reactors have similar large storage pools. There is less than 100 tons of nuclear material inside the reactor cores, but there is over 1,700 tons of nuclear material in cooling pools across the site. Fortunately, the fuel in the pools is more stable and cooler than the melted fuel in the reactor. However, there is nothing to contain the fuel if it does overheat and become unstable. After the earthquake, reactors 1, 2, and 3 were quickly shut down and backup power generators were able to maintain their crucial cooling systems. Cooling nuclear reactors is a simple concept. Keep the hot fuel underwater and use the steam generated to create power. However, the tsunami disabled all the backup power and cooling systems. Within hours, the water evaporated, allowing the fuel rods in reactor 1 to reach 2,800 degrees Celsius and they fully melted. The melted fuel created huge amounts of hydrogen gas that literally blew the roof off the building, spreading large amounts of radioactive isotopes around the countryside. Fortunately, the explosion occurred within the pressure venting system and not within the reactor itself. A much more dangerous situation would arise if the nuclear fuel melted through the reactor vessel and the surrounding containment structures. The resulting fire and unprecedented release of radioactive material is obviously the worst case scenario. We now know that the core of reactor 1 is fully melted and the cores of reactors 2 and 3 are at least partially melted. What this means is that the fuel rods have melted and collected in the bottom of the reactor pressure vessel, like a potentially catastrophic cup of soup. Also, in at least one of the melted reactors, the fuel has leaked out of the reactor pressure vessel, or RPV, and is now pooling inside a concrete containment vessel. Exactly how much fuel has leaked out is not known. However, based on the pressure inside the damaged reactors and the temperature of the RPVs, the situation seems to have stabilized. 
Indirect temperature measurements of the damaged RPVs range from 110 to 140 degrees Celsius. Now, the most important step in keeping the situation under control is building a cooling system that will keep the damaged fuel underwater and prevent further damage to the RPVs and containment structures. The company responsible for the plant, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, has pumped thousands of tons of water into the reactors and spent fuel pools to keep them cool. This has created an obvious problem of what to do with the wastewater. Last week, workers were able to create a closed-loop system that recycles the wastewater from reactors 1 through 4. If this system can remain in place, it is a crucial step in achieving cold shutdown, which means cooling the fuel below the boiling point of water. The goal is to have a cold shutdown by January, but based on the extensive damage, many observers are skeptical this will be achieved. Cold shutdown is just the beginning. Once cold shutdown is reached, fuel typically requires years of further cooling in a pool before it can be safely transferred to dry storage casks. This means it will be years before the 1,700 tons of nuclear fuel can be removed from the site. The cleaning process will create massive amounts of heavily radioactive debris that will be needed to be disposed of somewhere. The damaged reactors will likely be entombed in concrete, and the surrounding areas will need to be decontaminated as much as possible if people are ever going to return to their homes. The workers at Fukushima will have their hands full if they are to achieve all of the goals necessary to prevent any further disaster. The scale and complexity of the situation are unprecedented. Even in the best case scenario, it's going to take decades to determine the full effect of the disaster on the people working there, the people living around the plant, and the nuclear industry as a whole. So Martin, you mentioned it could be years before people can move back into the area. What are the radiation levels around the Fukushima power plant at the moment? So there's hot spots all around the plant. Um, some levels, it doesn't look like people are going to be able to go back very soon, but um, about 80,000 people were initially evacuated, and um, really it's up in the air as to how long and what areas will be permanently in, in, uh, inhabitable. Because I remember one of the big controversies at, at the time was the measurements kept fluctuating, and we had no idea, well, we had a very vague idea what the actual radiation levels were. Is that still the case, or has it normalized? It's, it's not normalized. Um, I think in terms of readings from the surrounding area, there's a lot better idea because they can, you know, it's safe to place the readings in there. But when you're, when you're reading about what's actually happening there in the day-to-day, -day, it turns out that they're actually just getting people inside those buildings. And the reason that we know the most about Reactor 1 is because that's the first place we've actually been able to go into. So they can't actually determine how much radiation is leaking out of some of the places directly in the plant. And that's obviously going to impact on the amount of radiation in the surrounding areas as well. Right. And is there still, um, are the workers in Fukushima still being exposed to very high levels when they're, when they're working? Because I know at the time that there were some workers that had radiation sickness. Is that still happening and just hushed? Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of people who've been in the Fukushima plant have been exposed to much more radiation than they're allowed to be in a single year. Um, the people who were initially there in the first weeks afterwards, some of them were exposed to massive amounts of radiation. Um, two people were hospitalized for burns. One person died of a heart attack, but that wasn't directly related. So the, the direct outcomes from like in radiation-induced death will, are still zero. But in terms of the long-term consequences of the radiation exposure, it's going to be decades before we have good epidemiological studies that can show increases in rates of cancer and, and things like that. I'd read that some of the people who were evacuated from a hospital in Fukushima died on the way. So, again, it wasn't a radiation-related mm -hmm. death, but it was related to the accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so they'll definitely be accounted for in, in, the, in the toll. 
And, you know, pending, this is all assuming a best case scenario. So reactor vessel one is, is a teacup, a broken teacup with nuclear fuel sitting in it that's still hot enough to boil water. Um, and we know that it's leaking because when we pump water into that reactor to cool it down, it leaks out. So how much of the fuel is still in there, how much of the fuel remain in there is still an open question. So these, these you know, long-term things will be decided in the next the months and years to come. And you were saying also there might, I think there's a good chance that there will be areas that will be permanently uninhabitable. Yes. Yeah, so I haven't done too much reading into the long-term um, what's going to happen, again, because it depends on these sort of best-case scenario things. But let's assume that you know, they can prevent any large-scale release of more radioactive material. They can get the fuel to a cold shutdown level. They can get the fuel in the pools out of there. And they'll basically most likely be entombing the reactors in concrete, and no one will ever live there again. Uh, in terms of how wide a radius there will be around it, um, I'm not sure. But I won't be buying any real estate in the Fukushima prefecture. I also heard that they actually had to store the sewerage in the area because the sewerage was too radioactive to release and also because they were building bricks out of the sewerage and they couldn't sell the bricks, so they had to store it. That's totally that, that's, that's going to be the case. Some people who are treated with um, radioactive isotopes for certain cancers will actually be instructed to um, keep their urine and feces. Um, and actually one woman who didn't do that... Um, well, she had it in a container in her back seat. It was driving through a tunnel in the U.S., and it set off the uh, nuclear detection that they have in the tunnels there and caused a bit of a, a panic. So, yeah, the, the nuclear, uh, the radioactivity gets inside you, and it leaves you in the same way that most things do. What I'm confused about is um, what's the difference between Fukushima and Chernobyl? Because I know that people are moving back into Chernobyl, and you said it would be permanently uninhabitable in Sh- Fukushima. Right. So the difference between Fukushima and Chernobyl, well, they were they had different causes, first of all, and they had different reactor types. So the main difference here is that in Chernobyl, there was no containment for the uh, nuclear core. So once it did melt down, it just released into the atmosphere, started a massive fire because of the heat, and the fire um, transported uh, the radioactivity all throughout Europe and the world. Whereas in Fukushima, we've had all of the core melt down, but it's sitting in this sort of broken teacup of its containment vessel. Um, and we know it's broken because the water pumps in and comes out. And we know it's broken because there's so much radiation around that it can't all be in there. So the next question is, where is the fuel leaking out to? And it's probably leaking out into the containment vessel that's made of concrete. Um, and the next question is going to be, how hot is that fuel? And can it get out of the concrete and st- start it to do the same kind of damage that the nuclear fuel in Chernobyl did? There's, there's a lot more nuclear material at Fukushima than there was at Chernobyl as well. So the potential for disaster is much greater, but based on the readings that they're getting right now, things look to be stable, knock on wood. Is Fukushima, compared to other reactors around the world, is it just your average reactor or is it larger than most? So Fukushima, uh, I can't say in terms of size where it stands, but in terms of design, it's, it's a modern design, but it's an old version of a modern reactor. So when you look at the reactors that are used in countries like France, um, Canada, and the USA, they are very similar, made by the same company, the same type of reactor, but they'll have a lot bigger containment vessels. So if the same thing that's happened at Chernobyl were to happen in a reactor, um, say in the US, with this, this same type of reactor, we'd be more in control. 
But one of the advantages to the Fukushima reactor, and it's a boiling water reactor, is that there's lots of different ways to pump water inside the reactor. So even though some of those have been disabled by the explosions and the heat, there's still ways to get water in there. And that's really what's preventing a catastrophe, is, is keeping whatever's left in there cool. And so we're going to have to keep cooling this until January of next year. Uh, we're going to have to keep cooling this for a decade. Oh, my goodness. And that's not all. There's all the spent fuel rods that have to be kept cooled for decades and decades and decades mm-hmm. because that's also what went wrong at Fukushima is they had spent fuel rods in a pool of water upstairs, which is a hard place to pump water. Here's a thumbnail introduction to atomic energy. Here are some important highlights of atomic history from the X-ray and electron and the quantum theory down to Einstein and his formula for mass and energy. It hooray, we've got atomic energy. It could mean a better world for all. It hooray for those who made it come to be. May we present the main events and heroes great and small. 1896, France. Henri Becquerel finds that uranium ore is radioactive. 1905, Switzerland. Albert Einstein shows that energy and matter are equivalent. E equals mc squared. 1913, Denmark. Niels Bohr explains how atoms emit light as electrons jump from higher orbits to lower ones. 1938, Germany. Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann split the uranium atom. 1942, United States of America. Enrico Fermi builds the first atomic pile and shows that atomic energy is practical. Hope and pray we use the power constructively to bring about a peaceful world for people great and small. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send us an email to diffusion at 2SER.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2SER.com. Tell us your thoughts, feelings, and stories. If you'd like to be on the radio and live in Sydney, we'd love to have more volunteers on Diffusion. You can subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe and Martin Ficini. Diffusion has been produced by me in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.